The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is the Vixologist himself, Mr. Jim Carroll. Jim, I'm always jealous of the hand <laughs> Vixologist. But introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? As you get involved in markets and why the focus on volatility? Sure. I have been in the investment advisory business almost 20 years. First as a one band and then with Toroso Advisors just over four years since 2019. Early on, and particularly surviving the global financial crisis, I was drawn to systematic rules-based approaches that had the promise or the potential of doing two things. One, managing risk, but also harvesting trends and momentum, you know, again, in a disciplined fashion, in a rules-based fashion. I'm talking to the king of (laughs) rules-based. Investing, Mr. Guyad. So interestingly, though, came at it in a slightly different way and employ some different approaches. So, you know, the good news for people out there is that there is no single way to skin the cat, but it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of patience, a lot of discipline to use what we call tactical asset allocation. In terms of the volatility side, It was 2015, and it seems so quaint in hindsight because equity markets seemed reasonably well, fully valued on a on any kind of fundamental basis. Bond markets, you know, could interest rates go any lower? Well, they could certainly stay a lot lower. But it looked to me like we needed to go someplace else to look for some return to augment portfolios and. I fell into the volatility world in part because Wall Street invented some new products coming out of the global financial crisis that allowed folks to take an opinion, either long or short volatility. So I I did a deep dive. There's a lot of research out there, both academic and practitioner, began to, well, developed a, a strategy that primarily looked for opportunities to be short volatility was a big user of XIV, was very successful in the back half of 2016 and the full year 2017. And in the middle of January 2018, my system said, get the hell out. So managed to dodge Volmageddon. The subsequent neutering of the volatility products post-Feb 2018 
made it a little less enticing, but some friends of mine reintroduced a couple of great volatility products, SFIX and UVIX last year. So, you know, we're kind of back in the game. And and that's the shortest version I come up with of how I got where I got. Right. So there's a lot of direction I want to take this. The For me, the, um, the rules-based focus really came into play in 2008. And I think similar to you in the sense, but different circumstances for me, yeah, between my father's closing of the firm, his passing, and me trying to find a job, right, with the GFC, which is in itself a full-time job, I didn't have time to trade from discretionary perspective, which is why I wanted to do a rules-based approach. So I learned easy language from trade station, did all kinds of backtesting, and just kind of ran things systematically. And I gravitate towards that, I think, for a similar reason that you do, which is that it removes the emotional aspect of a buy-or-sell decision. Now, you and I both know that just because something is systematic doesn't mean that it's always going to work, right? That there are cycles, even in the context of systematic trading. Talk about how you analyze the effectiveness or worth of any particular uh, strategy, right? Because there's a temptation to think that if something systematic that's not working, that it's going to keep on not working, just like there's a temptation to draw down for equities that find hold for that to keep on losing money. Right. So I think the, you know, one of one of the challenges, and it does go to emotions and behavioral finance, one of the challenges is that looking at any approach to investing over, you know, a single market cycle or less than a market cycle is a waste of time because it really can't tell you anything about the durability of a particular strategy. And so I think the information exists at least for, you know, the major asset classes to to test something going back multiple market cycles. And I think, you know, as an advisor, the first challenge is to say, okay, where are the rough spots going to be? Where are my clients going to call me up and say, you're an idiot? Why do you have me doing this? So that you can prepare for that. And even in advance, walk clients through how a strategy works, where it might not work, at least relative to, you know, the benchmarks that are in everybody's face every day and prepare people to be disciplined about using a strategy. And then the other thing that became clear to me was that it creates an entirely different approach to diversification. Oh, Jim, I'm well diversified. I own the S&P 500 index fund. <laughs> yeah wait for 2008 to roll back around and see how diversified you are when correlations all go to one. You know, that's easy peasy for us in the advisory business. But one of the things that is an opportunity for people, for advisors and for investors is to take different strategies and put them together in a portfolio and create what I call strategy diversification. So, you know, if you know where the weak points are, with a particular system, then look for another system that might ying when the other one's yanging, and together they have a relatively low or ideally even negative correlation and can smooth out the ride and produce more sustainable returns. So you and I also think similarly on that. I've made that point many years, for many years also, this idea that diversification doesn't really come from asset class, right? It comes from strategies, just like you said. and you know, when you think about something that's tactical, I'd argue that the equivalent of idiosyncratic risk with an active strategy is whipsaw risk. Right. It's right? something that's right. specific to the signal. 
So, you know, what do you do with idiosyncratic risk? You diversify across the number of investments. What do you do with, you know, signal whipsaw risk? You diversify across the number of signals or strategies. So I think that makes a ton of sense. But I think the other part of this also is that, you know, and you know that because you've done this for a while, you always have to ask yourself, what environments does something that's active and taxable not tend to work in? Mm-hmm. And environments where there's more whipsaw risk, right, where you get more of these kind of false signals. Talk through the last decade from a tactical perspective, because I've long made the argument that environments which are pure risk on up into the right cause whipsaws around defense, because inevitably you're going to get signals that say slow down and the market keeps going higher. An environment where it's purely about large caps because you can't really beat the S&P when it's the only game in town. How do you think through whipsaw risk in the last decade, which arguably has been very unusual? Well, I think I think, number one, you have to anticipate that there will be whipsaws. You have to expect that there will be whipsaws. You have to educate your clients that there will be whipsaws and take some of the sting out of it. There will also be times when, in my experience, the model tells you to do something and you say, you're out of your friggin' mind. That makes no sense at all. And I remember vividly, I, I got to go back just a little more than a decade, Michael. So I'm sorry. 2011. Summer of 2011, you know, in the spring, the market's kind of going, you know, lower left, upper right. It seems like things are okay. Bill Gross is telling everybody that he's short treasuries, you know, it's going to be a shit show. And I have this dumb little tactical model that, you know, is basically risk on, you know, into the summer, decides to buy TLT in June. And you're like, well, the smartest bond guy in the world is short TLT. Why do I want to do that? Well, I did it. And sure enough, we lost some money in June on TLT and kicked it out of the portfolio, swing back around. And I'm repositioning the portfolio on either the last day of July or the first day of August of 2011. And the model says, we want 100% fixed income. We want TLT, EMB, HYG, LQD. Do it. I did it. We left for Spain, and two days later, the market completely fell out of bed, and, you know, TLT went straight up. All the fixed income stuff, you know, held its value. I had clients calling me, Jim, what's going on in this market? It's crazy. It's, we must be losing tons of money. And I said, well, no, we're not. Now, interestingly, coming out of that, there was a little bit of, you know, a lag. And that's one of the other issues that you find in most systematic models irrespective of how often you rebalance, is that there will sometimes be a lag when the market disrupts. You know, if the market's positive, it won't necessarily turn on a dime when, you know, you might want it to turn on a dime. And the flip side is when the market's negative and sooner or later, it's going to turn around and head positive again and risk on assets will be where you want to be. You know, there typically is going to be some lag. And so, you know, the problem is you're never right enough But the way I tend to frame any systematic approach is that your objective is to be correct on average over time with drawdowns that are significantly smaller than the broad market. And if you can manage to do that, you're going to come out so far ahead, it's crazy. With the one caveat that the typical tactical asset allocation system is not tax efficient. So you might need to hide it someplace where you're not paying taxes, you know, retirement accounts, or, you know, try to find clients who 
got screwed by their last broker and have a bunch of tax loss carry forwards that you can chew through. I think that's an important point, right? If you're going to have something that's tactical, you want to ideally be in an environment where the lags are not going to kill you. So if you're in these kind of short and shallow V type of buy the dip environments, you might tactically position out of the market or defensively in advance at the left side of the V, but it's so quick to come back and the lag is there that you miss the right side and then some, Mm -hmm. right? Which goes back to the whipsaw point. And yeah, I remember that period also very well, August 2011, where you're right, I mean, Treasury's TLT were up something like 20% while the S&P was down 17 in like three weeks. So that one juncture, had you gotten at least a good chunk of that right, you know, defined many years of alpha just in a very concentrated way. And that that's another sort of, I think, interesting thing to tease out, which is, you know, when you think about tactical trading systems, what do you find works best tactical trading systems that focus more on frequency of small gains or magnitude of large gains, huh. right? It, because if you have my of large gains, you're going to have, you know, conceivably a lot of whipsaws and losses until kind of the fact pitch happens. Yeah, so so the other thing that I found interesting and, well, there, there are a couple of things to tease out here. One is, regardless of when you rebalance, you're going to be wrong. And, you know, the whole challenge with operating in this space is, you know, pulling up your big boy pants and recognizing that you're going to be wrong with some frequency. You know, you're going to look like you're out of step. But again, if you've done your work, you'll get back in step. And on average, over time, you'll come out ahead. But, you know, when you rebalance can create certain issues. Corey Hofstein's done some absolutely magnificent work on rebalance timing luck. There is no question. You know, so does that mean that you increase your frequency? Well, I don't know. Maybe it means you decrease your frequency. The other thing I will say is, again, the way, the same way we talked about employing different strategies as a way to improve overall performance, reduce correlations, operating on different timeframes. I have several systems that operate on different timeframes. And in aggregate, that produces some benefits. The other thing that I find fascinating about it is that if I look at where my fast twitch systems want to go versus my slow twitch systems, it it is kind of an interesting indicator of market sentiment and can sometimes be provide some leading indicators of where the overall market might be headed based on where, you know, a short-term aggressive strategy might be going and where it wants to allocate assets versus a longer-term approach. Yeah, and I think also, yeah, part of this is, you know, around frequency versus magnitude is also a question of being wrong with magnitude and waiting, right? So you mentioned you you got out of and avoided falling again. And, you know, I, I remember you sending me a text or sending a tweet because I, did the podcast myself where I said I didn't, right? In at least in my own PA. Right. Right. And my whole approach is very much driven on the idea that there are conditions that favor volatility. But as I always say, just because it's raining doesn't mean you'll crash, doesn't mean just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't. Right. right. It's still ultimately about probabilities. Right. So you can get a single roll of the die very wrong. And that's why waiting is so critical. Now, you know, when you're short vol, as we all know, short vol really works well because, you know, the time decay helps you when you're shorting vol. But again, you've got those tail risk type of dynamics. So how do you think about waiting and how much to expose shorting volatility, Mm. expose yourself to shorting volatility? Well, (laughs) we'll be back after a quick break. 
Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. The first thing that the average investor needs to recognize, because they don't think in these terminologies, is that if you are long the market, if you own stocks, if you own indices, if you're a passive investor, low cost, broad indices, you're short volatility because volatility is not your friend. And so there are any number of ways to be short volatility and you can be short volatility in size simply, again, by having all your money in broad equity indices, which is why there's a lot of attention being paid you know, certainly post GFC, post the COVID pandemic, post 2022, you know, how do I hedge my equity exposure? And God bless all the people who are out there, you know, selling tail risk. I I tend to take a different view and a different approach because most of the research suggests that, you know, always being hedged guarantees only one thing, that you're going to have a bleed that will be uncomfortable and that you may get rid of at just the wrong time. And so when I took the deep dive into messing around with these volatility exchange traded products and VIX futures and VIX and all this stuff, I kind of scratched my head and said, you know, why would you be dogmatic? I mean, okay, fine. The VIX futures are in contango, sloping lower left, upper right, roughly 80% of the time. And when the futures are in contango, as they are today, you know, the trade is to be short the futures because they're going to roll down to spot VIX and you're going to make a ton of money and and everything's going to be great, except that you will be punched in the face. And there are times when you'll be punched in the face hard. And in my experience, you'll be punched in the face in a way that will cause you to stop shorting volatility. You'll just say, this doesn't work or I can't handle this. And I felt from the beginning that there must be a way to take both sides of the trade to effectively time the market. And maybe that's because I was already keen on systematic rules-based approaches. And to this day, you know, I continue to believe that there are ways, and probably, you know, there's not just one way, but there are ways to use probabilities to take one side of the trade or the other and reasonably come out ahead. You will get punched in the face, in the gut, kicked in the groin. But let's just take 2023, year to date. Volatility has collapsed because we have this grind higher in equities where, you know, there have been no big moves. The S&P 500 has had only two days this year that were more than plus or minus 2%. We've had something like 38 or 39 trading sessions without a 1% down day in the S&P. Realized vol has collapsed. VIX has to collapse with the collapse we've seen in realized vol. It's still trading at a four-point-ish premium to trailing realized. 
And so SVIX, which is the one times inverse VIX futures ETF, you know, we've got NASDAQ up, what, 45% year to date through yesterday's close. SVIX is up 97%. Now, huh, you got your teeth kicked in a couple of times. You had a 25% drawdown in March and you were down 15% intraday on July 6th. Who wants to take that trade? Not very many people. So, you know, this is not buy and hold. This is not a strategic asset allocation to this particular set of instruments. But, you know, I believe that there are some techniques that traders are familiar with that could allow them to, you know, take both sides of that trade when appropriate. All right. So so let's talk about some of those techniques, because I think there is a lot of there are a lot of misconceptions around, you know, trading volatility products. Right. So I often see on Fintoid, well, you know, the VIX is below 14 or below 13. You know, it has only one direction to go. You know, it's we're in complacency. And you and I both know that, you know, that can stay low for a while and overbought can stay overbought in equities and vol can stay low for a while. Right. So, you know, the narrative around sentiment is not a timing mechanism. Right, but you still need to time. So, are you looking at things related to, you know, the shape of the future curve? To your point about contango backwardation, are you looking at other indicators that say odds favor I should not be shorting vol and I should be doing other things? Talk about some of the things that you look sure. at. Sure, and yeah, it's fascinating because you know there are a whole bunch of different ways to approach this, and you know the, the smart money critique of of the approach I take is, oh, you know. Only retail traders use those volatility exchange traded products. You know, you're a sophisticated professional. You should be directly trading the VIX futures or you should be doing this with options. And and I'm just a dummy, I guess, because my observation is that the ecosystem of the volatility exchange traded products is too small to attract the sharks for the most part. So that's where I want to be. <laughs> I want to be where the sharks aren't. In terms of you know how you do this, I think again, people can be confused. You know, one of the shibboleths out there is you wait for the VIX to spike and then you short the stuff. And great. So go look at a chart of VIX and find the spikes and look at what happened afterwards. And gee, yeah, that looks like a pretty good strategy. But, you know, let's also look at the lowest vol environment we've seen in history, 2017. 2017, you know, there was no volatility. And yet, because of the nature of this little ecosystem, VIX futures were trading at a premium to spot VIX, which was trading at a premium to realized S&P vol. And being short volatility from December 31st of 2016 to December 31st of 2017, you were up something like, I'm using the short vol index here. You were up, you know, over 180%. Yeah, your average daily return was 47 basis points. Now, you also had six days in there where, you know, it went against you 5% or worse. And, it, and the worst day was down 16.5%. Almost nobody on the planet could sit through that and not bail. But, you know, so so that was the flip side was you were waiting and waiting for a vol spike to get short vol. And that spike really never came. And what you really needed to do was just be patient and 
take what the market was giving you despite a, an extraordinarily low level of volatility. Jim Carson talks about this sometimes that, you know, sometimes the best time to be short vol is when there is no vol because that premium that exists is there to be taken in a relatively stable environment. And again, that's not to say that a strategy that waits for vol to spike to short vol can't work. But again, you've got to be very nimble because if you think a spike for a vol to 30 is your signal, what if it goes to 40 the next week? Well, you just got your face kicked in. So, you know, my observation, my, my simple-minded view is that you need to look at this the way a swing trader would look at this. And a word that you've used often, Michael, is conditions. You know, what are the conditions? Is the VIX futures term structure in contango or in backwardation? Is it flat? Is it steep? These are conditions that have an impact on the probabilities of a longer short trade. You know, is the VIX high or low? So you put your set of conditions together to assess the probabilities. Which side of the trade do I think I want to be on? And then to me, you know, you get a book on swing trading <laughs> and say, okay, I'm going to look at SVIX or UVIX or whichever one you want to trade. And, you know, when I think the conditions are right, I'm going to look for a place to get in. And then the same way a swing trader says, okay, maybe this is overbought or oversold. You know, maybe you want to take partial profits. Maybe you want to, you know, not get in all at once, but, you know, take a bite, take another bite on the way up. So it's a trend trader, swing trader with conditions in the background. Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow the Vixologist, Jim Carroll. And again, if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom of my request button. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, you know, that's interesting, Michael. And, you know, it causes a little blip on the radar for me. You know, to, for me, it's in the category of conditions. You know, I separate things that I look at. I separate into one pile, which is conditions, and another pile that's trade signals. And I put the behavior of implied correlation, you know, I watch the move index. Right. Does that do I trade the move index? No, just, you know, but it's one of those things that is is giving me a sense of market sentiment. So to me, the the more recent move in implied correlation, you know, causes the hair on the back of my neck to raise up a little bit, says, okay, this could be nothing. But the flip side is I'm gonna be watching carefully to see if this turns into something that can be disruptive which would potentially create an opportunity to be long vol. I think you're thinking about it correctly. So then the question is, okay, is that actionable? Is that something that puts me in a position where I want to take a position that would benefit from a potential disruption? 
And to me, that's a timing call, as is the case with every trend trader I've ever seen. They will not catch the bottom, nor will they get out at the top, right? I mean, you know, we've all talked about that before a million times. And so, you know, if I see, you know, the conditions that I like to observe, you know, go hard negative, I'm looking at the things that put me into a trade, but my experience says that I'm not, I'm going to try my damnedest not to get into that trade too early just because all the conditions have turned hard negative or hard positive for that care, for that matter. Because my experience is, and this is particular to the volatility space and these particular exchange traded products, but it could go to options as well, is that things don't always unfold the way you want them to. You know, there are head fakes and I've seen just countless head fakes where you think the shit's hitting the fan. And so you position yourself to benefit from the shit hitting the fan and then it blows over and, you know, you're you're out of pocket. And it's not the end of the world, but, you know, you sort of scratch your head and say, how come it didn't go the way I wanted it to? So my simple-minded approach is to allow price to tell me that things are going my direction. And if I give up whatever number of points or percents because I didn't tick the bottom, my experience is that when I get it right, I make enough money to compensate me fairly and I reduce those, you know, false positives. I've long believed that it's much easier to to time short volatility than to time long volatility, right? Because, you know, you have to get, it's no different than shorting socks, right? You have to get the timing so perfectly right to short. And, you know, people do it, right, all the time, but there's a lot of whipsaws going back to the early part of the discussion and false signals that make it very hard for shorting to work and very hard to get long fix just right. So I always make the argument that if you're going to make a bearish bet, better to play an imperfect hedge me, something that can move on its own if you are wrong, right? That's not necessarily directional. But yeah, I'll- the other thing that I would say, I'm sorry, Michael, the other thing I would say is, again, you know, position sizing, right? So, so if you think, okay, this is it, let's go, you, you don't put all the chips in, you know, you, you put a couple of chips in and you say, okay, I will not be bothered if this goes against me and I have to close out the position at a loss. But I'll feel a lot better if I'm right and this thing starts to snowball and then I can add to my position. You know, so again, I think, you know, we can all look at charts and say, God, that's exactly where I should have gotten in. And I could have loaded the boat and, oh, man. Well, guess what? Welcome to the game. You know, it's just it doesn't work that way. And so you have to accommodate. And I think the other thing, you know, and. Like most of us, I read all the Market Wizards books. And what I came away with is there are a thousand different ways to be incredibly successful in this business, but you got to find the one that works for you. You know, again, markets, you know, there are lots of famous sayings, right? Markets can stay overbought. And historically, you know, if you look at charts and believe in any technical analysis, it bears out that, you know, an overbought market can stay overbought a lot longer than you're comfortable and deep oversold tends to not last that long. But, uh, you know, again, there are so many different approaches. I see uh, I see my friend UVXY trader in the audience. And, you know, Michael's got a very statistical, probabilistic approach to 
the volatility markets using options that has been very successful for him. You know, I'm not smart enough to do what he does, but, you know, I can appreciate it and, and follow him for little crumbs that he leaves around every once in a while. You know, I see Mark Sebastian in the audience, you know, knows more, has forgotten more about options than I know. But, you know, that's what makes the world go round is people expressing, you know, investment views in different forms with different risk profiles, using different instruments. You know, it creates a, a healthy ecosystem. So, so I want to go to the, 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 I changed the name of the space last minute to make it a little bit more dramatic because I wanted to get back people into the space. But <laughs> I, I just I, saw that, Michael. I didn't see that before. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, know, you know, I get it, by the way. It's like, you know, I, I have a, an allergy to clickbait headlines. <laughs> the reality is that shit does work. I mean, you can complain about it all you want, but like people, you got to get them at the door first, right? So anyway, I love it. Big spike in big spike incoming. Okay, so I, and I've been very loud about this point. I said, you know, melt up year, pre-election year, but there's a credit out there. I still think we're in a bear market. This is just, I'm, I could be totally wrong on that. And I admit that. And yeah, but you only know that with hindsight. Okay, we all had the same problem in this space. Anybody that's disagree or, or agree is inherently making a prediction about the unknowable tomorrow. But it goes back to conditions. Okay, so from your vantage point, Jim, do you, are, are the conditions there for a surprise? Okay, along the lines of what Michael's talking about, but just looking at the VIX futures curve and any other signals that you look at, is there risk of something kind of short-term, you think, that, that might be elevated? That's really hard, but I'll come at it from a couple of different perspectives. I look at a bunch of different things around the volatility complex. I obviously look at the VIX futures term structure, which right now looks, you know, healthy as shit. You know, steep contango, the, the roll down yield is just huge. Now, I will also say, and I think I tweeted this out a day or two ago, that those spreads between the near term contracts are, you know, at historic wides. So, you know, while it has created some juicy roll down yield for a product like SVIX, how can you expect it to stay that way, you know, forever? Now, again, 2017, it was lower, but it was pretty steep and it just rolled down with great consistency. And who knows, 2023 could be, you know, a repeat of 2017, where, you know, if we get a dip, it gets bought and you know, you want to just go shorts and ball again. You mentioned credit conditions, and boy, that's an area where there are a whole bunch of cross currents, right? We read about bankruptcies skyrocketing, you know, real estate jingle mail, you know, large institutional investors handing over the keys to, you know, major commercial real estate projects. You know, there's got to be something to give, right? Well, if I look at credit spreads, nothing's given yet. And that's, again, one of the conditions that I monitor literally every day is looking at high yield and corporate credit spreads and yields. Yields are very high. And so, you know, anybody who's got to refinance is going to choke on it. And particularly if their financing is with a bank, because the bank ain't going to refi, they're going to have to go to Apollo or Aries or you know, one of the vultures to get funding again. So, but I'm not seeing a crack in credit, which is one of the things, you know, that I'm watchful for. I'm not seeing, you know, any real flattening of the VIX term structure. So, you know, could something happen? Sure. Something happened on July 6th and, you know, but we bounced right back. 
So, you know, as much as I would love, you know, an incoming VIX spike, I can't say it's going to happen in the next, you know, two days. Yeah, no, and by the way, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, it's like when I say credit event, credit event is just another way of saying a VIX spike mm. because there's a there's a direct correlation between, you know, widening credit spreads mm-hmm. and volatility. Right. Mm. I mean, I've made that argument a few times that the idea that there's a Fed put because of uh, the S&P going down heavy doesn't make any sense to me. The Fed reacts based on credit spreads. It's the effect of credit spreads and volatility interacting. That's when the Fed steps in. That's why they kept on making rates because you really haven't had, you know, that widening. Right. Right. Until something breaks. So if something breaking is spread widening. Full risk. Right. Right. So yeah, it's and that's why I keep saying it's out there and the timing is really challenging. Right. Because you don't know exactly when, you know, I put out that tweet that went a bit viral looking at some Bloomberg data that showed, you know, kind of private loan bankruptcy filings versus credit spreads. And first time in history, it's this divergent. Right. So it does seem like the music's playing in a pretty fancy, <laughs> but, you know, at any moment of time, it can pop in a very aggressive way. So, yeah. But if you know that, if, but if you think through that, right, if you believe you're at the tail end of the cycle, and again, from an asset allocation trading strategy perspective, what do you do? Do you start? shifting just in case because you know you're long in the tooth or you just keep on going until something breaks. Right. The old Chuck Prince, you know, as long as the music's playing, you got to keep dancing. And, you know, I think, again, that goes back to what kind of investor are you? Are you a nimble investor who is comfortable going in and out of different securities, different asset classes, you know, sitting on some cash when things are, you know, not in your favor? Or are you trying to be a more strategic, long-term buy-and-hold investor? You know, it's going to dictate very different approaches. And, you know, again, as someone who has a more tactical bent and a more tactical approach, you know, I pay attention to these things because, you know, I do like to be forewarned when there's some forewarning to be found. You know, back on the credit side, you know, see the same kind of data divergence that you referenced and the, you know, the things that could be put in the bad news category have yet to show up. There, there are two views of credit markets that I take. One I mentioned, which is, you know, it's just Fed, Fred data on, you know, credit spreads and yields. And those have been ticking down of late, i.e., you know, sort of more bullish for credit. The other one, I got to give a hat tip to Tom McClellan because there is published data on advanced decline in bond markets. You know, how many high yield bonds traded up yesterday versus traded down? Ditto for corporates, for investment grades. And, you know, I've found that, you know, that can be an interesting sentiment indicator in the credit space. And, you know, if you see spreads starting to widen and decliners, exceeding advancers in the credit market. Historically, those have given you a little heads up that the equity market might be in for a downturn. Not seeing that right now, but, you know, things change. For those that are uh, trying to get a better handle on trading volatility, where do they probably learn about that aspect of investing? Because again, it's not really investing, it's trading. I come back <laughs> to that point. And there's all kinds of nuances again, going back to an angle backwards, yeah. and right? I, I see a lot of people that just look at a chart on, you know, these long VIX futures ETFs and they say, oh, it's so low, it can't go lower, I'm going to buy it. Right. And it's like, you have to be really careful with that. Oh, right? yeah. So yeah. how do you self-educate properly? Well, that's that's a challenge. And it's a challenge in part because, 
you know, you can go to YouTube and find a bunch of people who claim they can tell you how to do it. And if it's on YouTube, you're probably in the wrong place. And I certainly wouldn't part with any money to learn from YouTubers trading volatility products. Now, you know, that there, there may be some useful educational information, but, you know, I go back to a simpler approach, which is to say, forget that you're trading volatility exchange traded products. You're trading volatile securities. And that could be Tesla, could be NVIDIA, could be Apple, could be Microsoft, could be anything. You know, take the approach that you are not owning these things, you're renting them. And think about it the way a swing trader might think about it. So there are any number of, you know, good resources out there about swing trading. And I would say just, you know, take a dive, read a book, apply some techniques, see how it works. And again, I think the single most critical element is find something that works for you. Whether it works for anybody else or not is irrelevant. If it And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't matter that it works for 10 other people because you won't get it right. But I would say, and again, there are lots of different ways to do this. There are option strategies that are, in some respects, <laughs> better and smarter. But I'm not better and smarter. I just, you know, I like my little pond. Please stay out of it. There are alligators in the pond. And I like, you know, hanging around with alligators. The most important question I want to ask you, which I've been waiting to ask you throughout this entire time, is when you have a killer VIX trade, as the VIXologist, what's your favorite drink? <laughs> well, this is, this is sad in, in certain respects because I am 99.9% Irish and I am the worst drinker perhaps on the planet and certainly the worst 99.9% .9 Irish drinker, but a very nice, smooth Cabernet Sauvignon would probably be my go-to. You know, I've got a couple of bottles of Camus hanging around. There's a uh, winery in Washington State that nobody's heard of called Quasita Creek. I've got some nice old Quasita Creek cab sitting around. So that's, that would be my go-to. I'm expecting you to tweet both Michael and myself when that big spike happens. <laughs> that, that's that bottle. Anyway, everybody, uh, please make sure you follow Jim Carroll. You know, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Peace out. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.